Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Today on the podcast, my friend Marcus Lane joins me as we discuss what it means to be a do-gooder, the assumptions upon their motivations, and how maybe a little bit of do-gooder is just what we need. And on The Wire, Marcus helps me dive a little deeper into the Dr. Seuss discussion and how some confusion around what actually happened might change the way you feel about it. All that headed your way as we give them the Bold Speak. Welcome, everyone, to the Bold Speak podcast. Glad you could be with us as we continue this series on defending hope. And on this episode, we're going to talk about something called the do-gooder principle, uh, focusing specifically on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Uh, now, we do have the pleasure of being joined by my good friend, Pastor Marcus Lane. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah, um, you know, now for those of who have been kind of following along with this series, you'll have noticed in the, the the first blog post that I mentioned Marcus because it was really a sermon that was done by him uh, regarding First Peter three fifteen uh, and some of the ideas there that, that really spawned this series. So I, I guess you know, from my perspective and our audience perspective, thank you again uh, <laughs> for for being the impetus for for you know while this is happening. So. Um, appreciate that and you'll be able to, to kind of listen to that sermon if you'd like to I'll go ahead and put a link um, in the in the comments here so that uh, people can get there and kind of listen to that and maybe kind of you know put some things together and, and see where we're uh, where we're going with this from yeah. that it was yeah. a, it was a great sermon so <laughs> I was just encouraged to know that someone was listening uh, so um, so you know let alone like a, a series of podcasts you know it's a little over the top Tony right, but right, right. Um, fair enough fair enough yeah we'll see uh, we're gonna see that that uh, listen rate on that sermon there, like go sky go. high from like four right, to six I'll it'll be great it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so so you know thanks for being on here i i think this is uh you know because a lot of this is kind of spawned from some of the ideas that you put out there and and kind of building on some of those things i think this is a great entry point for you to jump into the series um because it has a lot to do with you know the the idea of of how we live out kind of the grace and truth that you talked about um in that message specifically in regard to um being some Something that I think a lot of people look down on, and we'll talk about that in terms of the definition of what a, a do-gooder is, um, and those sorts of things. So um, excited for that! Uh, so before we jump in here, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, to kind of refresh your minds uh, from this section of First Peter three uh, verses thirteen to fourteen. Uh, and kind of get us going here. So again, as always, this is the English Standard Version of the Bible. It says this: Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. All right, so this is what we're dealing with here. And, and, and as we jump in, let, let's talk a little bit. Again, the, the, the ideas that we're dealing with here are, are, are kind of being a do-gooder and, and what I'm calling the do-gooder principle. To start out here, you know, what what comes to your mind when you think about a do-gooder, right? Because I was a little surprised at the way that it was actually defined. And I wrote about that uh, in the blog. And you can find that on our website, www.theboldspeak.com forward slash blog. Um, but but there really is kind of a negative connotation with this idea of, of being a do-gooder. Right. It does. It does seem like the word is most typically used in a very pejorative right, sense. Right. Like it's it's like, oh, you you naive, foolish <laughs> right. do-gooder. And it's interesting, like it, I almost I was thinking about it actually on my, my way over here. I was I was thinking about the way that like the term 
good Samaritan has right. almost even kind of have that yeah. same connotation where like you look at the story of scripture and like that's the the virtuous person who right. who as the the, the Jewish people walk by the person and right, it's, right. it's the Samaritan, the, the one looked down looked down upon right. is the one who actually does what the law requires. Right. Uh, and, Which is yeah, right. very, very much intentional on Jesus' part right, to make right, the exactly. Samaritan the and, one that does but it. But it yeah. is but it's interesting that you know how it's used, how the term is used, right? right? Whether it's do good or good Samaritan, is they have this sort of kind of foolish like right look at you that's so cute you're out here trying to make a difference (laughs) in a world where no one can really actually make a difference right right. kind of the way it's almost used Uh, yeah it's it's almost like that you know pat on the head like oh isn't that sweet like you know eventually you'll you'll learn and there's sort of a condescension that comes with it like well eventually when you realize that the world just doesn't work that way then you know then you'll be like the rest of us and really kind of see the world for what it is when when in fact, I think the case that we're making here and what we're going to get into, especially with with First Peter, is to say that, you know, that there is a, a almost a, a, a command, if you will, right, to, to, to live as a do-gooder, as someone who lives uh, in right relationship with people and does good things in the name of the gospel for others, right, and doesn't sort of succumb to the temptation of revenge. And that's, you know, that's why this one really is sort of a, a component piece to to the last podcast that, that Ashley and I did uh, talking about revenge as the, the hope killer, right, um, and this sort of vindictive idea or vindictive, vindictiveness that, that can sometimes come about when we want the world to change and it's not and we sort of get you know down to the dumps we lose hope and then we sort of lash out in in some ways in anger or any of those ways this one is is peter saying no you know i keep your hope kind of maintain your hope and do good and and kind of watch what happens um you'll get a different reaction definitely uh, over and above something like revenge right right i mean i think the the logic seems to be in first peter that like doing good is kind of hope put into action right is, yes is kind very of the, well said. kind of the thought yeah and and so him him sort of pushing us to do that and to be that i think is incredibly important and and obviously this is you know these two verses lead up to you know i guess the verse of first peter 3 which is 15 you know talking about always being ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you um, you know, this is this is, I think, the right segue of, of sort of him saying, like, let's let's consider what this looks like um, and, and how this hope plays itself out, which is going to be the impetus for anyone asking you, how can you be so hopeful? Right. Um, you know, and that's kind of the do gooder principle that we're talking about here is is, you know, when we do those good things, when we love our neighbor, when we live out the gospel, it's going to make people stop and say, what, you know, what's going on? How? How can you be so hopeful? How can you still be doing these things and and doing it in such a way that you look like you believe it's actually going to do something? Um, so kind of being in the face of of that condescension or or you know reaction we typically get from a somebody who sees a, a do gooder. Um, so you know that being said, I think um, I, I mean I don't know about you, but have you ever had any experience with with this? I mean, I know, you know, again, you you work with college students, um, at, you know, at the University Lutheran Chapel. Um, you know, you you're regularly involved in a lot of those things. How have you seen this sort of play out? I mean, I I have my experiences, but you, I would imagine, would see um, quite a bit of the interplay of hope and hopelessness um, quite right. often. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think 
there's there's a little bit of, of back and forth sure. where where I'll I'll encounter. I mean, I do think that college students, you know, as you're you're learning and you're kind of going through that self discovery, have perhaps maybe more of that optimistic view of like, I'm gonna get out there sure. and I'm gonna I'm gonna change the world. Right. And and there's there's a little bit more of that sense of like a can do attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually probably more in people who are like my peers sure you know that kind of in in terms of age demographic yeah who i think have they've been out of school for a while they've been working in the world for a while Mm -hmm. and i think what that has a tendency to do and 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 church workers are by no means exempt from this absolutely um but like a little bit of a jaded attitude of like i had this sense of optimism right that like i was going to get into my career and I was going to do something meaningful or, right. you know, specifically for, you know, for my peers who are pastors, sure. where you have this sense of like, I'm going to get out there and just through sheer energy and excitement about right. the gospel, I'm going to make a radical difference in right. the church. And right. that doesn't happen. And what can easily follow from that is a sense of just sort of. I don't know apathy um, yeah. and and you know so it, it kind of hardens you a little bit now i think some of that it's it's you know you're going from a little bit of a sense of of naivete about the sure. way the world is and, and yeah. how people really are right um to you know but that the extreme pendulum swing to the other side can just be this sense of, of hopelessness really sure and and then i think that there are also cultural forces that only really kind of only further exacerbate that mm. Um, so I'm I'm a fan of of uh, an author by the name of of James Edwards. Uh, he's I guess I don't know exactly what you would call him. I'm going to call him a philosophical historian, okay. if you will. <laughs> and sure. uh, and he coined a, a term to kind of describe the the kind of general tenor of Western culture mm. right now uh, that he calls normal nihilism. And oh, okay. and so nihilism is is kind of this system or this thought idea you know kind of this thought that like well life really doesn't matter nothing Mm -hmm. really matters Mm -hmm. um and it's kind of you know born out of very like nietzschean philosophy of like with the death of god there's really no deeper meaning or purpose behind the material world right none of it matters and edwards kind of suggests that this idea of nihilism really pervades society to the sense that it's to the extent that it's been normalized Mm. that there is this sort of broad ache in society that like we're living this life for really no obvious purpose. Mm. And and what Edwards identifies is like most people actually can't like deal with that. Like right. it's it's hard to get up and, and work at a job that right. maybe you hate, maybe you don't hate. It's sure. it's hard to like, you know, pay all your bills and yeah. keep your yeah, head yeah, above yeah. water and, yep. and just the things, you know, the rigors that that daily life, even for for privileged Americans demands. Right, right. right. It's exhausting to do that and mm-hmm. not have a sense of this means something right and and so there and so mostly what a lot of us end up doing is is because we can't deal with this like nagging sense that everything's meaningless mm-hmm. uh, to kind of borrow from from the preacher in ecclesiastes <laughs> right, right 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 is is we just kind of anesthetize ourselves to it right sure. and this gives birth to like entertainment culture of, sure, of sure, i sure. just kind of like i go to work so i can fund my hobbies and entertainment so i don't actually have to think about how hard and meaningless my work feels right 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 but then the more i want to be entertained the more that i have to work and, and right. you know it just builds this it, vicious it, cycle right and really is as a as kind of have like read into this like this notion of normal nihilism 
is really just kind of it's I would describe it. It's generally a sense of hopelessness. Sure. Like it's it's just the hopelessness that like life as it is is hard. It's always going to be hard. Right. Things will never get better. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I should at least have some fun and not really think about right, it. Right. <laughs> is uh, is kind of the I yeah. think kind of the the general disposition that that we it, encounter. Yeah, I would imagine the the, the size of the void um in your heart that could result from this kind of normalized nihilism um is is intense and could very easily and readily create the kind of hopelessness that that we've been talking about right um right you and know, do you see you know again again kind of working with the college students do you see um sort of a a, a i don't want to say a, a backlash but do you see like external influences to hopelessness um, in the face of kind of what you're attempting or trying to do in ministry, which is give them the hope of the gospel and encourage them in the hope of the gospel. Are you seeing uh, a bit of a, a war there, if you will? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, because like, I, I think that, you know, these things, they, they kind of all exist in tension sure. a little bit. And so like there is perhaps, you know, I would say that that normal nihilism influences, you know, the the psyche of the the average university student sure. in America in 2021. Uh, however, I, I do think that there is also, you know, you see, you know, particularly in, in Gen Z, which is, you know, primarily the age demographic that I'm working with, mm -hmm. a, a strong bent toward, you know, issues of social justice, mm -hmm. um, a strong bent toward caring for, you know, for folks who are marginalized, yeah. you know, uh, a, a desire to to seek to reform things that are broken, like yeah. healthcare and immigration and, yeah. and things like that. And so those things are, are present. And, it, and it, so it seems almost like there's almost this like living contradiction. I think sure. that sometimes people end up finding themselves in where it's like, there's these things that I feel very deeply need to change but I'm not sure if I'll ever actually be able to change them. Right. And I'm not ever, you know, I'm not sure if, if my work fighting for issues of justice is ever going to actually make a difference. Yeah. You know, and that, uh, that I think in many ways sets us up for a bit of complexity when it comes to, you know, what I would, I would say is sort of a, a new age of activism, which is mm -hmm. kind of what we're seeing where it feels like the activism is more rooted in thoughts than it is actions. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it, it has become more of a, a battle of ideas than it is necessarily, you know, going out to combat things like racism, uh, classism, you know, these kinds of things. Um, you know, so so we'll we'll talk about it a lot on on social media. You know, we'll we'll debate with people in, in classrooms and and all sorts of places at work or whatever about these ideas. But then we'll go home feeling like we did something good because maybe we presented an idea that we think is helpful helpful but you know what are we doing beyond that what are the actions that are associated right. with that that are out there and, and doing the good uh, right. that we're called to not just talking about it yeah and 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 i'll say like i think there's a place for you know trying to call you know and call people to to awareness absolutely of, of absolutely. these issues you know and, and so there's a place for that um however like i think we want that awareness. We, we would ideally want that awareness to lead somewhere and, right. and, and call people to change. Yep. And I think that sometimes like we we've just kind of culturally found ourselves just kind of stuck in the like, yeah, I, I feel like I have to say something about this mm -hmm. to someone. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not really anyone on 
it's not any one particular political side of this. No, I, you know, yeah, it feels like all, yeah. it feels like there's a lot of like yelling into the void yeah. <laughs> on yep, social yep. media where yep. it's like I'm frustrated about this and yeah. I just need to say it. Right. Um and and again, I like I don't necessarily fault anyone for for feeling that right, way. Right, right, right. Um but it's like I, I do think that it's it's difficult like because it's like okay, well what what meaningful change is are our social media arguments actually leading to right right well and you know and that that gets to a little bit of you know what ashley and i talked about in the last episode which is you know i i think when you when you get to a place of hopelessness and and kind of revenge becomes your your modus operandi right you you now all of a sudden are not necessarily invested in what actions are going to actually bring about change but more invested in what actions are going to satisfy my frustrations or anger about this mm-hmm. particular thing um and, and so it's it's really easy to get stuck there um right. you know when you start to look around and you say i i don't know how you know these major issues i don't know how they're going to change i don't know how we're going to actually achieve anything um productive here so i'm just so frustrated and and things just feel so hopeless i just feel like i need to spout off about this or or whatever and and i think you're right it's it's not isolated to any one particular side on the political spectrum or the other i think it's just a general sense or feeling of hopelessness that leads us to um stop considering what actions will actually bring about the change we want to see but just what's going to, like I said, satisfy me in this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's frustrating. And, you know, for, for, for our purposes, as we continue to look at this thing and, and, and focusing on what Peter is really calling us to, it, it feels to me like the heart of Peter's message really revolves around the gospel and, and the gospel's place in, in change. So my question to you is, is, do you think that there is a a correlation um, between hope and and gospel change? And sort of, what is the place of hope in in doing the work of the gospel that brings about the change we want to see? Yeah, yeah. I I think that there's. I mean, honestly, I think it, there's not just a correlation. I think that those things throughout the New Testament are just like they're completely tied together. Mm, like yeah. you can't separate them right. from one another. Right. And, and kind of the way I think the language that, that I think kind of has helped me kind of grasp this, this concept is, you know, really one of the things about the Christian hope and, and the promises of the gospel, you know, mm-hmm. that, that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead right. for the salvation of the world. He's coming again to establish God's perfect reign over all creation. Right. Right. That's the future God has in store for us. And because we know that's the future, ultimately it's it's sort of like we know how the story ends. Right, right. right. And so what we get to do is we get to actually live from the end of the story. Right, yeah. Um, you know, so I think like, you know, someone who maybe has a strong bent toward issues of justice, uh, who doesn't have maybe that same sense of of hope that's rooted in the in in a promise Mm -hmm. but maybe hope that's rooted in more of a sense of like if we do the right things and we enact the right change things might get better right um that can very easily lead to a sense of burnout because you can you can work and work and work and you can be advocating for all the right policies and and it may be good stuff good changes absolutely but you may run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock and over time 
that becomes disheartening yeah. and, and it can just feel like you're fighting a losing battle. And it's not like the Christian never feels like you're, oh, you're fighting yeah. losing battles sometimes. <laughs> but what you still have always kind of in kind of in the in the future mm-hmm. is you still have the promises of God right. that that like the good that you're working for won't be wasted. Right. Um, because God is going to restore all things and he's going to use the work of his people he's going to use the good that we do right uh to bring that about yeah um, and and so it's it's not like i'm i'm not oil you know i it's nt Wright who says you know you're not oiling the wheels of a vehicle that's about to be pushed off a cliff right, right? that that you are you're working for something that will last because god promised it's going to last right. even if you don't get to see the fruit of it in your own, in your lifetime. own lifetime, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and I, I th- that's a great way to put that. And I think a really big part of what Peter's addressing here, simply because that's right, that's the way it's always worked, right? You look at countless narratives or points in the biblical witness, and and, and I think this is a big part of why Peter, um, you know, references Psalm 34 as he sort of leads into this, because you know you're dealing with David who is is faced with the reality that he's been anointed king, but Saul is still in that political position and seems to not be ready in any way, shape, or form to give it up, right? So he's pursuing David. And David's hope is not in David's ability to overcome Saul, but rather in the promise that God made to David that I'm going to make you king. So I'm going to see this through whether you realize it or, or see it for what it is or not. And so David holds on to that promise. And that's what prevents him from being in a position where he has hopelessness and seeks Saul's life as Saul is seeking David's right. And, and right. David had, you know, more than one opportunity to, to take Saul out and, and didn't take it. So, you know, you, you see this, this life of David lived out in a, in a future hope that he doesn't realize, but I mean, you go down the list, right? Abraham, same thing, right? Hope in, in having a child, hope being the father of many nations because of a promise that God made, but, he's not even really seeing the fruit of it, uh, you know, much right. in his own life. And, and so, you know, he doubts and Moses, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Right. Um, but that's sort of the way that God has always worked is, is the hope is in God's promise and God's ability to carry it out, not necessarily in, in what we have. Um, and, and, you know, I feel like for a secular world, that's where it starts to get difficult because like you said, a lot of the change that we attempt to make is on the basis of, of laws um, because a world without, Jesus is a world that only can operate by laws. There is no um, kind of gospel promise tied to Mm -hmm. um, making changes. That's the only world that they know. Right. Um, So then it becomes a battle over legislation. It becomes a battle over policies. It becomes a battle over those things. And you will always have conflict there because there's always going to be people on the other side who, who think that something should go differently. A law should be written differently. Legislation should look different. Um, so it, it sort of becomes a battle that you start to feel you can never win when you're kind of stuck in the, the, the legalism, um, if you will, associated with the, you know, with a secular world. Whereas within a Christian worldview, um, there is a promise of a future hope. I might not, I likely, you likely will not see racism end in our lifetime but racism will eventually end. Right. right. Um, you know, sexism will eventually end um, when Christ returns. Right. That's a promise that was made. That's a promise we believe will be fulfilled. And we can find hope in that. Right. 
Right. And I, and I think like that, that link actually trying to link, um, hope with doing good. I think it helps us understand, you know, that there's, there's actually a connection between like different Christian spiritual practices Mm -hmm. and actually like doing good. Because I think that's, that's sometimes the accusation of, of Christians. It's like, well, you're not really actually concerned about this world. Sure. You just want to, you just want to pray and, and sing your songs right. and just wait until God, you know, takes you off to heaven. Oh, right, right, right. And, and I think that actually, I mean, that's perhaps a fair accusation of, of how Christian, respects, Christian practice has, yeah. has manifest itself in some ways. But, but one of the, I think, big influences on me and my understanding of, of like, worship and, and Christian spirituality is uh, a guy by the name of, of Robert Weber. And and his whole thing is is he summarizes the entire purpose of Christian worship in in two words. That Christian worship is all about memory and hope. Mm. Um, and so and what he means by that is is Christian worship is centered around God's people gathering to remember what God has done. Mm. Right? To remember his actions right. in history. Right. Um and and you think, you know, there's there's so much language like within the Psalms oh, absolutely. and, you know, I think of the song of Moses after, mm-hmm. after the people of Israel are, are led through the, the Red Sea that, that kind of characterizes this yeah. sort of remembering intentionally yep. uh, in, in song, in prayer, in, in, in your formal acts of worship, what God has done, how he has acted in history. And when we remember that, that is the thing that fills us with hope. With and hope. it's that hope that is... And, and this is what kind of the logic of First Peter here, it's that hope that moves us to action, sure. right? It, it's that hope that says like, this life is not meaningless. Uh, this world is going somewhere. Right. Uh, God does have things in store for us. And we want to work to manifest those things right now right so that people can be invited to experience them along with us right uh, you know it's it, you know you say that i'm i'm reminded you know luther famously said that that the truest you know form of worship is is just life together right like the, mm-hmm. living out uh, the reality of worship and you know pointing out that you know adam and eve um it, it nowhere in there does it seem any indication that they got together and sat in a pew and, and waited for for god to come down and preach a sermon um you know th- their worship was just kind of living together and, and living in a relationship with god um you know and and from a perspective of worship and i'm going to get too far in the weeds here in worship but it is something that i'm, I'm fascinated by is you know w- one of the things that that i've discussed with people from time to time is is um the nature of sort of what we classify as liturgical worship right certain practices within worship the very first time you get anything closely associated with what we would say is kind of liturgical worship in the bible is specifically the passover Right? Mm-hmm. It's the first time that God says, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to do it this way every time you do it, because each component of the Passover is intended to remind you of a promise that I fulfilled, that I made, right? So there's this huge pedagogical drive right. behind right. behind that worship. And, and like you said, the whole purpose is to remind you, I made a promise and I fulfilled it. And I want you to remember that right. because right. I've made other promises and I'm going to fulfill them just the same way that I fulfilled this one. And and that that kind of being reminded over and over again that God makes promises and he fulfills them, makes promises and fulfills right. them. That's what brings about hope. That generates the hope because, you know, as as we've been talking about with Charles Schneider's work, right, there's the agency, right? The, mm-hmm. the belief that we can get to the place that that we need to go 
but that belief isn't rooted in my ability or our ability collective as a society, but rather in God's promise that he'll fulfill it. He's fulfilled every promise he's made so far. I can't see a reason why he won't fulfill that one. And that generates the hope. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And you think of, you know, in the Passover, like that language, uh, you know, it's even explicit in there. Like right. when your children ask, right, you know, right, what, right. like, why do we celebrate this meal? Like, dad, what's this all about again? Right. I, we're having lamb again. Like, I was like, <laughs> Come on. Like, um, you know, that it's like, well, like, let me tell you what our God has right. done. Right. Um, you know, that it becomes this this thing that anchors our identity yep. in the hope that we have right. in who our God is. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So uh, that being said, I, I, there's, you know, there's a part at the end of this that I think at the end of this first Peter three section in verse 14 um, that I think can can maybe sometimes trip people up a little bit in terms of understanding what the blessing is specifically tied to it. And, and we had a conversation, um, you know, with, with, with pastor Gabe, um, you know, a couple episodes ago about sort of the, the, the realities of, of blessing, you know, those who, who do harm against us, mm-hmm. um, and sort of what that looks like. But here, Peter's talking about this, the, the kind of blessings that you receive from, from doing good. And, what what is he talking about here? What specifically is he referencing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind and kind of uh, biblical correlation is is thinking of of the the end of the Beatitudes when when mm. Jesus promises, you know, blessed are you when others revile you and right. persecute you, right, right. Uh, for so you know they persecuted the prophets right. who were before <laughs> right, you, right, right. right. Um, and so there seems to be you know that connection there too. Yeah. It's like if you're harmed for doing good, like. Well, we know a guy who said something about that <laughs> right, once. Um, that may have been addressed um, before. Right. And and it's actually the guy who's the, at the center of our hope. Right. You know, and right. and so like there's that connection to uh to the beatitudes that it's you know those who are persecuted for righteousness like you have a blessing um in the kingdom of God. Right. Um but I think I think there's also this sense where like when we like if doing good, right? L- like living doing good loving our neighbor you know serving the world around us um like if we're doing that and that if that's living into really what god wants for us then i think that that good that we do is in a certain sense a a blessing within itself right um you know like where on the on the flip side like living in sin like is bad for us Right. right and so when we're embracing doing good regardless of of whether we're praised for it or or rejected for it yep. like we have that confidence of like you know what like i'm doing the good that god has in store for me right and, and that is that is good for me um but i also think that that it's um you know it's worth noting that like when we do good when we faithfully follow jesus in the way that he's called us to like the world is blessed through that, yes. whether that whether they recognize it or, absolutely. or not. Absolutely, you know, I, I think there are a lot of. I, I've always loved um, the the idea of creation, you know, being a living thing, and in, in that there is kind of natural um, consequences and and reactive uh, realities to creation. When you sin, 
creation fights back, right? So in other words, there are there are repercussions for things um, that are just sort of naturally built into the system. That goes for bad and for good, right? Um, you know, when, when, when you do good, when you show people love, when you show people the gospel, when you show people care, there are natural realities that, that flow from that. Um, you know, relationships tend to go better, you know, when you, when you <laughs> right. care for somebody as right. opposed to, you know, act evil toward them, um, which shouldn't be surprising. Right. Um, but, but there are some natural realities to that. So, you know, living lives of the gospel, uh, doing the gospel, living the gospel in the lives of other people is going to generate um, better relationships. It's going to, you know, create better ties and connections between people. And I think those are just natural realities to, to, to doing good. Um, that, you know, I think as you look at sort of the do-gooder and the sort of naivete that is uh, oftentimes projected upon the do-gooder, what you do see, though, is the the do-gooder is generally more happy. They genuinely right. l- enjoy right. life more. They genuinely have, on the whole, better relationships with people, right? There are some natural realities that come as a result of that. And, you know, and then I think the the bigger side that you mentioned to it, there are, um, you know, larger spiritual uh, consequences to doing good that mm-hmm. you are more in alignment with God. There's uh, a greater tie to him. And, and more often than not, um, you know, as, as Peter's talking about, and we're going to get to more so in the next episode, um, that when you do these good things and people see that and, and talk to you about it, and then you explain, I'm doing this as a result of what God has done for me. Right. That starts to create this, um, you know, this faith that uh, you know, that is passed on to other people as they start to see the good that you're doing. So, yeah, there's sort of natural realities to that as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, excellent. Well, I, I appreciate you, you know, stopping by and and having a conversation about uh, kind of the the idea of of being a do gooder. You know, hopefully, um, for those of you out there that are listening, you know, if you've ever experienced this, someone sort of looking at you as as a bit puzzled, maybe because uh, of a hope that you have. Maybe this puts a little bit of context to it, um, helps you sort of frame uh, what what you've been experiencing and and you know how this looks like to move forward um, in gospel love. And and ultimately, that's where we want everybody everyone to be is to to live out the gospel um in their lives and and see the change that results from it so uh thanks again for being on the episode we really appreciate it yeah absolutely it's been a pleasure yeah um so kind of moving on here um there's uh, you know many features that we do here on the bold speak podcast one of those features is the wire and today we're going to talk a little bit about dr seuss um and a a lot of the controversy that's sort of um, (laughs) spurred up as a result of uh of dr seuss's writing and and maybe some confusions uh, I think that have resulted from from a lot of this. Uh, that's all ahead next on the wire. Okay, so a lot has been said as of late uh, about this whole controversy regarding Dr. Seuss, and and there's been outcries from people about you know from cancel culture perspective, and um, you know those who are saying you know he was just a blatant racist, and and I mean there, oh, it seems like there's all sides to this thing, um, and I've done some reading on this, Marcus. I mean, what's your take on this? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, again, this has been a huge uh, social media storm. It seems right. now for the last. Right. Right. several days yeah i mean it's it's one of those things um that just i think it just has found itself at the center of the culture war sure you sure, know sure. and and it, it just becomes the whipping boy for <laughs> you know for everyone's opinion on on right. uh 
on how things, you know, what's right or wrong right, with, right, right. Uh, with the world right now. But, it, you know, as uh, you know, like you said, you've, you've kind of done some looking into it and I've, I've done some as well. And, you know, one of the things that I think is is helpful to kind of understand within this is like, I don't really remember prior to, you know, the, the Dr. Seuss publishing company mm-hmm. uh, making you know, kind of making a statement that they were pulling a few books from production. I don't remember like massive outcries for people like we need to stop publishing, you know, like we need to cancel Dr. Seuss. Right, right, right. And so it does, you know, it appears and, you know, like most of the things that I've read, you know, kind of seem to echo this is like that this was really entirely the the Dr. Seuss company, like kind of a process of their self-reflection and saying like, Okay, over time, like we're we're looking back at some of these illustrations, um, and and maybe you know maybe even some of the the writing itself, right? And we're like, you know, these, let's be honest, like these don't age well, um, right? And and these these images, you know, that that once maybe maybe seem funny or silly, now we we recognize are, are kind of probably hurtful, and and they perhaps foster a lot of negative stereotypes of, around, you know, people of, of different, you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Right. Um, and so really, it seemed like, you know, to me that this was like, really kind of, I think the way you would want, you exactly. know, something like this exactly. done. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I appreciate you saying that, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion out there as to what actually happened. And, and you know, all, all it really is, is, is Dr. Seuss company, the publishing company saying, you know, look, we're, we're looking back through this and, and, and a lot of this is contextual, right? I mean, you're looking at a guy who was writing a lot of popular books and children's books, um, around the forties, late forties. And, and there was a lot of negative stereotypes against Asians. And there are a lot of negative Asian stereotypes and a lot of his early work around that time. And they're mm-hmm. looking at that and saying, you know, maybe, maybe this is a little much, this isn't necessarily appropriate. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, uh, I, I think, rightfully so, been a lot of uh, reflection on the ways that races and ethnicities have been portrayed. Um, and, and so I think this is the right way to go about it. You know, they've they had that moment of reflection and they said, you know, we're going to we're going to pull them from production. And I think that's the important thing to note, right? Like, it's not like anyone saying never read Dr. Seuss again. Uh, right. You know, the, the, <laughs> right. the, the cat in the hat is bad now. And, and Horton right. Hears a Who and, you know, any number of the, the, the most famous works of Dr. Seuss. No one's saying that it's it's more along the lines of they as a publishing company decided this is something we need. You know, we feel we need to do to, right. to help to to right the the wrongs or the hurts right. uh, that have been placed upon racial or ethnic groups. And, and so we're taking some responsibility for this. Yeah. And, and we're going to own that and we're going to make some changes. Yeah. I mean, um, I would I would kind of just frame it this way. And, and actually, it was, I can't really take credit for this, but it was like got in a conversation uh, about this uh kind of a running one via text message over mm. probably the last week or so. Sure. And uh, and one of the, the people in the thread, you know, he kind of put it this way. He's like, you know, if I worked for Dr. Seuss, which is a, a children's book company. Right. And, and like my higher ups, you know, started saying like, hey, we publish books for kids. Uh, are there images in some of those books 
that maybe don't promote a positive self-image for kids who might read our books. Right. What should we do about that? Like, right. Like, would I feel ashamed or would I feel proud right. that, that the company that I worked for went through that process of self-examination, Right. went through the process of thinking, what do we want the books that we produce to do for children? Right. And and then making a choice that's in alignment with the values uh, of, exactly. of our company. I, uh, like, I would feel, I would be like, wow, like, that was like a big move responsible and, and yeah. yeah and responsible and and i think keeps like it keeps the vision of what we're trying to do at the center not like a sense of like well these you know these have been around it's you know kind of just a default like it's tradition kind of right. thing <laughs> right. and and therefore we can't touch it right uh, but to rather say like you know that there, there are great things that Dr. Seuss's writings have done and, right. and the illustrations, like they're, they're fun. Yeah. Um, and then there are ones that like they were produced in a different time and things that came out that are, it's like, you know, that's just not helpful. Right. And so let's, let's just stop. Right. And, and, you know, there are many books that, that Dr. Seuss released that are actually against racism and you right. know, blatantly right, against right, right. racism. So, you know, there's things like that, but yeah, you, you have to be conscious of that. And, and, you know, some of these works that do have some of those things, you know, you have children of those ethnic and racial backgrounds who are maybe reading these and then thinking, is there something weird about me? Is there something funny about me? Is there something that shouldn't be about me because of the way that this book seems to um, discuss or illustrate uh, people of a similar ethnic right. or racial background? So, you know, there, there are things that I think we need to be aware of. Uh, the, the thing that I thought was really kind of striking about this whole, you know, debate and topic is, you know, like you said, and like we've said already, I think the Dr. Seuss Publishing Company is going about it in the right way. But the firestorm, I think, is the result of a larger battle going right. on that are people sort right. of lumping this into, um, you know, because, it, you know, on the on the last podcast episode, um, you know, Ashley and I talked about or discussed, um, you know, the actress from The Mandalorian that was, you know, fired for the things that she said and and how we've sort of gotten into this habit of, of you know, people make a mistake. They even make a very public mistake. But our reaction is sort of like fire them, dismiss them, pretend like they don't exist. You know, we're kind of done right. with them, which I, I don't think that's that's necessarily helpful. You know, in, and when you engage in in issues like this, where you're dealing with, uh, you know, decades long, centuries long, you know, racial profiles and ideas and things that are in people's heads. If we want people to change, we have to open the space for the dialogue to help them change. And, and it seems to me, you know, like in that situation, it would have been much more productive for Disney to say, yes, we, we saw it. We've had a conversation with her. We're going to put her in sensitivity training. We're going to work with her, but we believe in her and we right. believe that she can change. And so we're going to encourage that change in her as opposed to we're just going to fire and distance ourselves from her because that, that seems to polarize people. Right. right. In, in other words, it just seems to be like, well, we're done with you. And that's, you know, then the thought is like, well, is that how this is handled is, right. you know, you're not interested in my change. You're just interested more in yourself and kind of protecting yourself. And it, it feels like a lot of those things, which, which I would acknowledge and, and say, I, I don't think those are very Christian. Uh, I don't think that's the way that, that we as the church at least should approach those things. Right. I don't expect, you know, Disney to, to act in a Christian manner, but I think, 
you know, for, for us to look at those and say, that's not the way things I think should be handled. This is not that. Right. Right. And I think really easily we could just kind of grab the whole Dr. Seuss thing and, and pull it in and lump it in where this one really is, I think, a, a, a rightful act of repentance and contrition on behalf of the Dr. Seuss Publishing Company. And, and I respect that. I appreciate that. Right. Yeah. I mean, so one of my uh, a good friend of mine, he's he's a pastor, but he also does. Um, he also does a lot of work in the way of, of racial justice. Uh, he mm -hmm. does community organizing and, and does facilitations on anti-racism training. Sure. And like kind of uh, some of his bit, you know, his big language, you know, regarding issues of race and the history of racism in, in our country is like is repentance and repair. Right. Right. And so repentance is like. It's that acknowledgement sure. of the wrong and the harm that was done and it's and an intentional turning from it. Right. As well as actively seeking to make repair right. for the wrong that was done. And and I actually think the Dr. Seuss example is, is actually a pretty good example, example of, that, yeah. like of of that where it's like they recognize like that this was wrong and they and they ask themselves, what's the appropriate way to repair this? Right. And and for them, it was we're going to chart a new path forward yep. for the things that we're going to choose to publish. Yeah. And I yeah, I think that's I think it's the right way to go. And I, I'm you know, I'm, I was very pleased, you know, as you know, again, news articles are coming up and you're seeing all these things and thinking what exactly is happening here, um, you know, to, to do what I think we should all do, which is do a little bit more research, find out what's right. actually going on. And, and, you know, once I was able to read that, I was actually very pleased um, with with the way the Dr. Seuss Publishing Company handled that. And, and hope that other companies kind of take that cue and say that was the right way to go about this right let's see what we can do uh, in a similar vein so um yeah so uh, you know whatever your thoughts on this uh, you know throw those out um make sure you comment uh, in the spaces down below we'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions about this uh, and engage in a, a bit of a further conversation um to to talk about you know ways that companies can do this sort of repentance and repair that's great language um moving forward so uh that's what we have to say about what's going on with dr seuss on this edition of the wire That's all for this episode of the Bold Speak podcast. Make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, all at forward slash the Bold Speak. You can learn more about the ministry and find other resources at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you like, subscribe and share this podcast to stay up to date on the latest from Bold Speak Ministries. Until next time, everyone, keep living the gospel, live with hope and keep giving them the Bold Speak.